You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, William Shakespeare prepares a throne of blood for Romeo, who must die. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Adam. A fellow of infinite jest of most excellent fancy. He hath bored me on his back a thousand times, and now, how abhorred in my imagination it is. Where be your jibes now, your gambles, your songs, your flashes of merriment that were wont to set the table on a roar? Not one now to mock your own grinning. Now get you to my lady's chamber and tell her, let her paint an inch thick. To this favor she must come. Make her laugh at that. And I am Adam Thomas, and, uh... Methinks my co-host doth intro too much. Thank you, MC. MC. Yes. Yes, 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 quite. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, the lovely roses, so lovely. Thank you so much for those. Yes, welcome everybody to the Double Edge Double Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I cover a double feature based on a topic that we've chosen. Um, and uh, you know, one person has the bad choices, one person has the good choices, and uh, you know, we eventually get a good and a bad feature out of that to cover every episode. And uh, before we get too long into this, we should say. This is the first episode of 2022, so Happy New Year, everybody. Happy 2022 to everyone. Um, hope, you know, it looks a bit better. That's all you can hope. Yeah. Yeah, I hope it doesn't get any worse. Let's put it that way. Yes, yes. Uh, knock on wood <laughs> firmly. I'm going to break my table knocking on this wood. Um, but yes, uh, New Year, uh, and we decided to start the year off, Adam, with uh, something that we've been kind of mulling over a bit uh, in the back of our minds for, like, what could be a new episode of the show. And uh, we decided on Shakespeare adaptations appropriately for now, because uh, around the time this uh, episode's coming out, it'll be the week of uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth coming out on Apple TV+. Plus. It's in theaters currently as we're recording in, like, a limited release, but it'll be on Apple TV Plus for everyone to watch. The Just Joel Cohen... Uh, adaptation of the classic Shakespeare play starring Denzel Washington, Francis McNorman, Brendan Gleeson. Very curious to see how that goes, especially with just a Juan Cohen brother involved. Yeah, I'm pretty stoked on it, though. Like, it looks great. The Everything I've seen about it looks pretty dope. So, I mean, you know, I, it, I don't expect it to suck. Let's put it that way. Right. High praises. I know. I know. Super high praises. Yes, and plus we had uh, favorable opinions to uh, director duo uh, returning uh, to the silver screen with just one person, and not the other, directing for the first time recently, with uh, Lana Wachowski. Yeah! And of course, I'm sure everyone who's listening agrees with us and has no dissenting opinion. 
to what because that's why you all listen to podcasts right it's just because you want to listen to exactly your exact opinion and not be challenged at all and that's what we provide (laughs) nothing challenging on any level um but it might be a bit challenging to go into uh, adaptations of mr shakespeare adam because uh you know we're not the most highfalutin boys out there but this is uh this is a bit more highfalutin than our usual fare this isn't a canon film unless there is a shakespeare canon film if there isn't why wasn't there yeah, yeah, I'm sure there is. Uh, but but isn't it a bit intimidating to to dive into this for you, Adam? I mean, yes and no. It's not that I don't really have a problem with the language or anything like that. Just it never really interested me. I've never been into Shakespeare. Like I get it, I get why he's you know as revered as he is and everything like that. It's just I I fucking I don't care. Is it just like that homework association, maybe? Yeah, probably. That's yeah. probably a thousand percent what it is. Just because there was a lot of that. I took like drama and English lit and all that stuff. And we, it was constant Shakespeare, Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Like, fuck, he's dead. He's dead. Get over it. <laughs> no, he's still, the bard still lives in the hearts and minds of all those who love the theater. <laughs> That's where he uh, lives. I don't think introducing kids to Shakespeare via reading the play is a great idea. I think that also kind of put me off as well, especially when so many different um, schools tend to start off with something like Romeo and Juliet, which brutal take that is tangentially related to one of our movies. Um, I think Romeo and Juliet is a very overrated play. What? I've never been a huge fan. We read that like in middle school and I was like, boring, whatever. I saw the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, blah, 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 blah. Um, but with like high school, I remember reading Hamlet in class and I was like, this is fucking dope. This is great. And from there, I haven't become like a huge Shakespeare connoisseur necessarily, but I've been more open to especially either watching like on stage adaptations or actual film adaptations, especially. I think the Kenneth Branagh movies helped me quite a bit with that, particularly the Hamlet that he did that's like four hours long. That's a great piece of cinema. Uh, but it also is just the whole Shakespeare text pretty much, and it's four hours long it's not an interesting four hours at any length yeah i mean i've always liked that adaptation too i've always hamlet's actually probably been my i guess my most favored i i just truly do enjoy the story uh you know and then of course macbeth and othello and all i mean there's a lot of good stories it's just i let's put it this way i'm never against watching them but it's never something i seek out like pretty much ever if it's somebody who's watching it or they recommend it to me, then I'll check it out. But usually it's not, I wouldn't say it's my go-to at all. I mean, it's ever my huge immediate kind of connection. But at the same time, what I like about especially adapting uh, in cinematic form with Shakespeare is that there's so much you can change just by keeping maybe the same language or the same basic story. The stories still like work really well. Even something as like loose as much as do about nothing or Midsummer Night's Dream. There was a lot of fun to sort of like putting people in certain places with that. Even like Romeo and Juliet, as much as I wasn't a huge fan of the actual play, I think there have been adaptations of that that kind of take the premise and do something different. Like I at the same time I don't like Romeo and Juliet. I love me some West Side story. It's like the most recent film versions and stuff like that. I, I think there's a way where you can adapt the Bard's, like, outline at the very least and turn into, like, a fun modern movie. And that's why even there have been the phases where, like, there was a Laurence Olivier phase, like, in the 40s and 50s that led into, like, people like Orson Welles making productions. And then, you know, Shakespeare adaptations have come and gone throughout all this time. But then in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, there's that sudden spurt of, like, oh, my God, 10 Things I Hate About You. Everyone wants to do Shakespeare adaptations, but, like, teens are involved. 
And uh, that was at least kind of like a, a fun spurt. So th- despite the fact that these are old stories and can be kind of daunting, uh, there still is like an adaptability that makes them work uh, no matter the age that would follow. Yeah, all right. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, of course. They are timeless stories and they can be interpreted and told in so many different ways. But I just argue that, I think he's kind of said it best, like 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh my gosh, Shakespeare Teens, let's do 13 of those movies. And you're like, okay, we fucking get it. It, it just kind of seems, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm on the fence on old Billy Shakespeare. I'm sure. Oh, Billy Shakes is so upset about that. Like, no, yeah. I wanted to. I've had millions of people read and love my plays, but I really wanted Adam to. No. Yeah. Billy Shakes is his pool hustler name. That's the third in the Hustler trilogy we never got. Paul Newman got never got to play Shakespeare playing pool. Yeah, that's Billy Shakes, baby. Mm-hmm. Well, Adam, uh, we're covering two films that are adapted from two uh, a very different Shakespeare plays here, uh, which we chose, like I said, at the end of our last episode, though we had some help from some people. Uh, so for the Shakespeare Adaptations episode, we are doing first our bad pick, which was chosen by you, which is Romeo Must Die. And I feel like there should be an asterisk added to that title in terms of Shakespeare adaptation, but we'll get into that in a moment. Um, And then our good pick is Throne of Blood, which was one of my choices, though the patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod ended up choosing it uh, for our particular episode. All right, well, now let's go ahead and get into uh, our first or bad feature for the episode, uh, Romeo Must Die. city ruled by criminals. Two families have forgotten their fear of the law. But he will make them remember. From the producer of The Matrix... Romeo Must Die. So Romeo Must Die came out on March 22nd, 2000, uh, from director Andreas Bartowick, which I apologize for friend of the show. Polish man's name. Well, that's true, friend of the show, mainly because of you, sir. Um, yeah, I know. Because uh, we have covered th- now. This is the third film of his we've covered because uh, we also covered Exit Wounds previously and well before that, Street Fighter: The Legend of Chun Li. And uh, yeah, this is his first film though. We should mention because before this, he was a cinematographer on a few movies like Terms of Endearment, Speed, The Devil's Advocate, and also Lethal Weapon Four, which is most notable because uh, that film starred Jet Li, who makes, I believe, his, like, American starring debut in this film as well, right? This is his first American yeah, vehicle yeah, yeah. since Lethal Weapon 4. He was a side villain character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. This is, like, his first lead. Now, Adam, with the two movies we covered previously from this director, um, we're not necessarily the hugest fans of his work. Speak for yourself. Well, that's true. Because of you, you're the <laughs> biggest, uh, you're starting the uh, Bartcast, right? You're starting Bartcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. That's what it is. Billy Shakes and the Bartcast. <laughs> Covering all seven of his directorial efforts as of yet. Fuck yeah. It's going to be a one-week special, baby. <laughs> uh, but but no, yeah, we haven't been the hugest fan of his work, and this is definitely fitting, at least in that 
category because it seems like a low-budget action film. And in particular, this is uh, uh, cost only about $25 million. Made 91, so pretty successful at the time it came out. I think mainly on the strength of, like, say, a Jet Li sort of being a new presence. And post-Matrix especially, everyone's like, oh, fuck. Now we're getting Jet Li in here. This is going to be so much fun. Um, Adam, as the person who chooses as our bad pick, uh, maybe you can reveal uh, to us, uh, is it fun? I mean, maybe if you, like, just awoke from a 30-year-old coma and someone showed it to you, you'd just be so happy to be awake. <laughs> uh, but other than that, no, this movie's terrible. It is terrible. It's riddled with racial stereotypes and bad, really bad wire fighting. Oh, and God. Anthony Anderson and just zero chemistry between pretty much anybody, but especially the leads. Uh, it's no, this is a terrible, terrible film. Yeah. Um, and mainly compared to his other works, I would say this is better than Street Fighter Legend of Chen Li, uh, but not even as good uh, as an exit wounds, which I remember when we covered I it. Know. I like, I really like the like DMX stuff in that movie for the record. Not so much yeah. here. Uh, R.I.P. DMX, but um, you were given a very bad hint with your intro line being guns don't kill people, people kill people. I'm like, oh no. DMX. Yeah, no. Yeah. X, don't give this to me. Don't yeah. give this to me. Oh lord. But but yeah, I, I still think this one feels worse. I agree because like the wire fight stuff and even a lot of the cast stuff. Though we should mention another big factor about this movie is it was also the debut of Aaliyah who at the time was a singer, and uh, this was her first and unfortunately only uh, one of two movies she would do before she tragically died the next year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this was the only one that she saw released. So I believe she died before Queen of the Dam was released. Right, yeah, because she'd shot Queen of the Dam. She even shot like stuff for the Matrix sequels that unfortunately she was not mm-hmm. going to finish, so they recast her with Noah Gay, among other things. But um, yeah, this was the only one that she saw released. And I'll say that I think whatever scenes are most tolerable in this movie, it tends to be with her, and I'd say particularly her and Delroy Lindo uh, as her yes. father. I think particularly the scene where he comes in just talks about like, oh man, remember when I tried to sit you up with that one boy when you were younger? Just like, yeah, I remember. It was really awkward and I ended up kissing him. You kissed him? Yeah, I, I totally did. I missed those days and stuff like that. That was like a genuine scene of like, oh my God, I feel a connection between two people in this movie that isn't fucking dumb. Where is this the rest of the movie? <laughs> Yeah, and then the the main sort of antagonists in this movie, one is, you know, Isaiah Washington, which we all know is a fucking scumbag. But no, excuse me, how dare you besmirch the star of God's Not Dead 4, Adam? How dare you do such a thing? Uh, because God's Not Dead, he's truly alive, and he's in our hearts. So, anyways. Um... <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke for Ugh. maybe none of you. <laughs> Yeah, nobody will listen to this show. Then, the, I, and forgive me, I, I always forget his name, but the one who plays the other antagonist that Jet Li has the big, long, stupid fight with at the end with the x-ray moves. Um, oh, I believe that's um, Russell Wong, right? Yeah, there you go. He is also completely devoid of any charisma. That's true. Him and Isaiah Washington, they love their leather suits. Oh, they do. They, <laughs> they are. They really do. Leather. Um, so, yeah, this is... In theory, based on Romeo and Juliet, which I think we should firmly state this right now, um, the term loose adaptation is too loose for this movie. If a pair of pants were as loose as this movie is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, 
um, you would not be able to wear those pants. No belts would keep them on. Yeah, I mean, I yes, but I mean, there are still some of the the classic ideas in there with the two warring sort of families and the two people caught in between and the sort of revenge plot and, you know, intrigue and, you know, blah, 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 and, and sort of double crossing. It's all there. It's just, it barely matters. The whole point of Romeo and Juliet is like, oh, Romeo and Juliet have some kind of connection that they find, and that's the big spark that causes any of this, like, conflict between the two warring factions. Mm-hmm. Problem is, that's not really the case, because right from the start, you have um, Jet Li's brother, who I guess is the stand-in for uh, Marcuccio, who ends up dying. Yeah. And the whole thing is that it usually would happen, like, obviously, like, around the middle of the play. And that's what makes sense to, like, get Jet Li's Romeo wired up to, like, oh, I'm gonna start killing people. But that is the inciting incident of this movie. So then when him and Juliet end up getting together, and this Juliet Trish, the Aaliyah character, like, I don't know what they were trying to do, because there's not really, like, a romance building up between them. And I don't know if they're trying that, or if this was, like, a weird, like, thing in production that made that not happen. I don't know, because it barely feels like there's any kind of actual, even attempted connection between the two of them. Well, and they also lack any chemistry together. Like, it's just not there. Right. And there's nothing about them you would think, oh, they would have a genuine attraction to each other. And by the way, he does get charged up and plays kung fu football, so you forgot oh, about that. Good point, yes, where he says American football, and then he goes around with, like you mentioned, very bad wire foo. Like, the wire foo the in worst. this... Is, yeah, especially because, like, they clearly digitally remove all of the wires, and you can tell, because yes. it's just, like, certain areas where the wires would be, there's a very clear, like, 2000s digital blur. <laughs> but, I mean, even, like, with the, the chemistry with her and Aaliyah, like, it's a weird thing where even if they did try and go full board with the romance, it would be a lot creepier to me. Just because, like... Yeah. Aaliyah, like, this guy doesn't barely understands English. Why are you... This is like that one subplot in Love Actually with Colin Firth that's really fucking creepy if you think for a second about it. That doesn't really work. <laughs> that's, that's very accurate. Plus, what kind of store does she run? <laughs> okay, you know, maybe, Adam, we're, we might be confusing people. Why don't, you, why don't you give people, like, a basic plot synopsis of Romeo Must Die? Uh, like we said, Jet Li's brother is killed by... You know, he believes to be the African-American gang in this movie, which is headed by Delra and Lindo, who is his daughter. And he comes back to, like, confront his father, who runs the Asian gang. And they, him and Aaliyah get sort of crossed in the middle, and she's doing everything she can to not be part of her father's sort of crime fantasy, because her brother also gets caught in the crossfire. And then it's blah, 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 treachery, people trading, being traitors, people trying to get out of the life, people trying to get further into the life. And, I mean, just bullshit shenanigans. The whole movie is just bull- Romeo must shenanigan. I mean, and that's about as well as I could describe it, because that's as thin as the plot really is. Yeah, despite being based on a play that's been adapted multiple times into films and television and various other things. It has a pretty simple plot. Of all, like, the, the very Shakespeare plays, it's the one that you have to really try to fuck up. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah. the movie tries so hard and succeeds at fucking it up. Oh, they really fuck it up. But again, what is her business? I, yes, I, I want to know. So, so like, sh- her side business, I guess, the one that she has more passion about that her dad bankrolls, is this weird, like, it's part salon, part daycare part center. Clo- part clothing store. Part, part dance studio. Part 
DJ room part. What the fuck? <laughs> I don't understand what this store is. And, and also, it all looks like specifically like late 90s, early 2000s era, like Nickelodeon game show. Oh, this place is the max from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> right. It looks like, a bit like that. 100%. But, but even, like, it feels like I should be looking at like a studio audience. It's just like, yay, that was a lot of fun. Let's go and do the taping of Double Dare in here now in a moment. It's right, like... exactly. Break in the temple. Yeah, bring in, bring in Olmec. Olmec would be such a great supporting yeah. player in this. Yeah, he'd be, he'd be awesome. Over certain other people, like maybe um, another recurring player uh, who would later be in Exit Wounds uh, for Mr. Bart over here, who is who we'll call the direct brother, Mr. Bart, um, is Anthony Anderson, uh, who I would weirdly argue, I don't think he's as annoying as he is in Exit Wounds, uh, maybe because he doesn't have as much screen time. But also some of the worst moments in the movie are him, specifically the bit where they're in the record store because he plays a guy that like is taking care of Aaliyah for Delroy Lindo and is like babysitting her basically. And they go to a record store and he's distracted hitting on a lady. Aaliyah, meanwhile, is buying records and leaves the store uh, right outside where you can see an Aaliyah poster, which is that this is breaking the fourth wall in a weird way. And then moments afterward, she gets into Jet Li's car and hides from Anthony Anderson. And he's like, oh man, you better get your Aaliyah looking ass out here. Just like, guys. So funny. It's so smart. And uh, it's no, it's terrible. It's <laughs> terrible. And like I said, it just, yeah, anything with him in this is horrible. Where, I mean, he he's constantly making like, you know, racist jokes and doing the, I can do Kung Fu too. And you know, that classic, wah, bullshit. You're like, oh, fuck, this is so stupid. It's so bad. And I'd argue, honestly, I'm, I find him more annoying in this than I did in the other one, than in Exit Wounds, which is saying a lot because he's really annoying in Exit Wounds. But I, it just, like you said, any moment he's on screen in this, it's they kind of just let him do whatever he wants, where at least in Exit Wounds, like he'd be partnered with DMX or something like that, who was trying to ground it a little bit more. And this, it's just kind of like, yeah, go nuts. Well, I think it also helps that he doesn't have as much screen time because we have to make room for people. Like, which one is the guy who plays like the the sort of Trump stand-in for this movie? The Isn't that um, Eduardo Ballerini, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Delroy Lindo has to answer to this guy who we don't, who we see mostly in shadow or from behind. Like, oh man, this guy is like buying up all the real estate. He's going to be this secret evil white collar villain. And dude shows up and I'm just like, is this the guy's son who is wearing his dad's suit? Because this guy looks <laughs> so, he looks so young and he look it's just so weird. Where it's just like, I don't, I don't even believe him as like a guy with a lot of money who's, you know, like trying to pretend like he's bigger shit. It just looks just like, where's the main guy we're supposed to meet? It just, anytime he shows up, they're, they're like the climax of this movie where he's sort of like, oh, he's like the big main guy behind the guy. This is the reveal of the Wizard of Oz. And it's like, this motherfucker who's just like doing a pursed lip thing, like he's doing a bad Trump impression. I know. And then just the concept, you could, is that tight with you, homeboy? And you're like, oh. Yes, here's all the cheddar. Oh, it's so racist and stereotypical. That's a great 2000s era fucking dumb catchphrases and stuff. Just like, oh man, this should have just been called Romeo 2000. Yeah, I mean, for real. It's garbage. No, it's a garbage fire of a movie. And the thing is, like, honestly, and I, I really honestly I want your answer to this. 
did you feel any stakes to this whatsoever? I mean, I felt immense stakes when Jet Li was jumping around wire foo style and the action scenes were so poorly cut together that I could barely understand what was going on. I think that's that's like my biggest trouble with this movie because like, okay, you can make in theory an action movie out of Shakespeare, right? That's not above sure. doing something I've seen Shakespeare. it. Like, right. But when you make an action film this inept, clearly from a first time filmmaker... Right from the, the 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 big one where I was like, oh my god, I'm in so much trouble, is the bit where he goes up to Aaliyah's house uh, gently and then leaves Anthony Anderson and the goons try and follow after him, and it all takes place in the alley. I'm just like, oh my god, I can barely follow what the fuck's going on from like shot to shot. This is so poorly edited together. If you're going to do this with Shakespeare, where it's like, okay, we're going to cut out the language and put in the action bits... The action bits better work, especially if you're not following the the very basic-ass outline of Romeo and Juliet that well at all. I think this movie would have been troubled either way, but if they would have focused on really giving solid you know, martial arts scenes and really good action choreography and cinematography, I, I, I'd probably be a lot more positive on it than I am now, because at least you know there'd be some ex- something exciting to look at. When the only decent action sequence in this movie is the car chase in a movie with Jet Li in it, you know you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble <laughs> when that's the case. Yeah, that's a problem. And then, like I said, the random x-ray stuff that they do. Oh, Like, what is the God. point of this? That first happens at that, like, alley fight, right? Yeah, or, I, I believe so. Right, which is, like, almost midway through the movie. And I was just like, wait, are we doing this? And it just feels so out of place. And... Yep. And weird, and it's just like, what is, is this like a fucking like Mortal Kombat X finishing move now? What are we doing with this? Why is this here? I, I know, and it's like the thing is, if they would have done it like even in the opening, like the prison, his prison escape, or anything, I mean, it would still would have been like jarring, but at least it had been something they committed to from the beginning. Like you said, it comes in halfway through the movie, they do it like four times, and then that's it. Part of it probably also comes from the fact that this is a Joel Silver production. And Joel Silver had just come off the success of the first Matrix movie. And this came out about like a year to almost the day after the Matrix came out. And this feels so much like a movie chasing the that kind of interest in the Matrix and trying to replicate that. Uh, but shocker that it doesn't fucking work. Cause it's almost as if this is like was hastily put together to do that and also cash in on Jet Li, who um, I mean, we've covered um, a Jet Li movie on the on the show before. I'm curious, Adam, what do you think made him unable to cross over as well as, say, like a Jackie Chan, who at this time was very successful in the U.S.? What do you think is, like, the big barrier to Lee? Jackie Chan is so able to just do the comedic bits and, you know, the stunt work and poke fun of himself and everything. Jet Li is just a dead-ass serious martial artist actor. And for this to be sort of his first thing, this this attempt at sort of almost an action comedy, it just doesn't work for him at all. That's what worked so well with him in Lethal Weapon 4, where he was the bad guy, where everybody else, yeah, you saw the classic Lethal Weapon sort of tongue-in-cheeknicks around him, but he was dead-ass serious and scary, and it worked. And it played to his strengths of being almost like the silent-type intimidator. They give him too much dialogue, they give him too many moments of maybe levity, and and just it's it just doesn't work. Jet Li putting on a backwards cap and trying to look tough when he goes in that club is one of the stupidest oh. things I've ever seen in my life. And they dance to the Aaliyah song, it's I believe, so at the club. Bad. Oh, sure. They, yes, of course they do. And it's just, it doesn't work for him. It doesn't work. Jet Li works 
as just the ass kicking machine. He doesn't work as the sort of romantic lead in this weird, really fucking batshit stupid script. It's just, it's not for him. No, yeah, and especially contrasted with Nalia, who I would argue has, like, obviously we will never know what kind of career she would have had after this. She had potential, though, dude. That's what I was about to say, is that she has a lot of potential here in this movie, and I haven't even seen Queen of the Damned, so I'm not sure if that's a more promising. Whoa, back pocket! <laughs> oh, boy. I, I figured this much. <laughs> but, like, I wasn't even, like, as aware of Aaliyah, because I guess I was just a bit too young. But I, I had a weird experience where in research for this episode, I watched some of the old music videos. And I instantly was aware of, like, oh, yeah, that, like, that Somebody song. Like, I remember that song and some of these other ones. I think she had a lot of potential to be, like, a solid star presence, maybe not the most nuanced actress. Uh, but here, like, she's she's trying to hold this movie up as much as she can. God bless her. She's trying so hard. <laughs> she's trying. I'd say her and Delray Linda, like you said, are the only two that are really right for their roles. Everybody else is just, ugh. Shocker that Deborah Lindo is a very committed and professional actor who usually does the best even in the worst movies that he's in. Shocker. Yeah, shocker. I know. Hot take. Big yeah. statement. Yeah. I mean, it, this movie's so weirdly flawed down to by the end of the movie, apparently I found this out, the whole finale afterward were like um, Jet Li and Aaliyah were supposed to kiss and then exit yeah. the film and that would have been the end of the movie. And apparently this was cut uh, for varying reasons. Some said it was a weird test audience thing where they were uh, being quite uncomfortable with interracial kiss for some reason. But Jet Li claimed that it was more an issue of um, it was deemed inappropriate for Han, his character, to be too romantic after seeing Chow's suicide. So the ending without the kiss was used instead. Another great thing, by the way, this Romeo and Juliet movie uh, manages to not actually commit to the one thing that everyone knows about the play, which is the tragic romance. Yep. Yeah, we don't get that. They're just friends. In a different universe, a, a, a movie based on Romeo and Juliet featuring the triads and sort of, you know, African-American gangs warring against each other and, and a love blossoming between, you know, the two children of the, the heads of the different factions and being a really cool crime you know, city, gritty, kung fu action movie, it could be really fucking cool. Yeah, honestly, if you just, if you if you take, say, the structure of a, a West Side Story, but instead of having musical numbers have big yeah. action set pieces, that could work. Yeah, it'd be aw- it could be awesome, but because of this, I don't think we'll ever get it. I highly <laughs> doubt it. You're assuming that anyone's gonna, like, have that much remembrance of Romeo Must Die, to be fair. That's true. This is very much a lost-to-time movie. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's a garbage fire. 10 out of 10, though. <laughs> Are those good final thoughts, Adam? Garbage fire, 10 out of 10? <laughs> I mean, yeah, pretty much. I just think, you know, th- this movie has so much potential on screen, uh, be it with Aaliyah or the idea of it and where it could have gone, and even Jet Li as a lead and things like that. Like, there's a lot that they could have done right, and unfortunately, they chose to do none of it. Everything is done wrong. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll definitely agree with those things that you've said as final thoughts. I'll also just add, um, when a better-made adaptation of this source material that changes significant things is Tromeo and Juliet, you know you're, like, screwed. You know, like... (laughs) Oh, oh God, that is a hot statement, but I got it. It's a more agree. faithful adaptation. It's a better, more consistent, better consistently at least made movie. 
than this one is. And I don't know, I get a bit more entertainment value out of saying, like, Sean Gunn having his head thrown onto a fire hydrant and part of it's, like, come off over watching this movie. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess I gotta, I can't disagree. Jeez. Better jokes than Romeo and Juliet. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's saying a whole lot. Yes. yes. Uh, so yeah, Romeo must die. Um, and our attention span for it must die. Uh, until we meet again, Mr. Bart, until Adam chooses another one of your movies, we will say adieu and farewell to you soon. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna hook you up, buddy. I'll get oh, you going. I can't wait. What else is there in this great filmography we haven't covered, Adam? I have no fucking clue. I don't like this guy, but <laughs> we're going to figure it out. Nope, you don't like him at all, but we must watch all of this. Oh, there's, okay, Adam, we have either uh, Doom, Cradle to the Grave, uh-huh. Dead oh. Reckoning, or uh-huh. Maximum Impact. Okay. All right. Well, ouch. But if we got to do it, we're going to do it. We don't have to, but you keep insisting that we do. You have, yeah, like, whenever, every single time we end the call and we're like, oh, well, there's some future episodes we could do. Uh, Bartcast. Bartcast. Adam really wants to do yep. a Bart episode. Yeah, man. That's going to happen, too. Oh, oh, no. Maybe it will. Someday. Uh, well, before we get to our next feature, here is a promo for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. For the past 12 seasons, Mike and Mike have been bringing you a weekly look at all things geek. With reviews, discussions, interviews, and topicals from across the Geekosphere. Now, with Geek Life slowly returning to normal in 2021, join the Earth Station One crew as we look at the return of the summer movie season, preview the fall TV lineup, look at all the big conventions now happening, along with other geek topics. You can listen to Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found. And as always, Earth Station One is a founding member of the ESO Network. All right, Adam, well, let's get into our second feature here. Um, a bit more prestigious from a more prestigious filmmaker, many would argue. It's many, not all. Um, we have Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. So Throne of Blood came out January 15th, 1957 from, as I mentioned, Akira Kurosawa, uh, though he co-wrote this with a couple uh, other people, and uh, was also based on Macbeth specifically. From Mr. Shakespeare, as it were. Um, and this is the first Akira Kurosawa movie we've ever covered on the show. And mainly, you know, it's a bit daunting to cover a film from one of the best and most celebrated filmmakers of all time. I Absolutely. It was a uh, very daunting thing. I'm curious, what is your familiarity with Mr. Kurosawa in terms of his filmography? Like, I'm sure you've seen Seven Samurai, but uh, any others? Well, my experience with him is very limited. Obviously, I know of him, and yes, I've seen Seven Samurai. But I, I honestly, going back and looking at the filmography, I think that might be the only one I've seen. And yet, I obviously, I know Kurosawa by reputation. I think if you're any kind of a, you consider yourself a fan of cinema, you know Akira Kurosawa. Like, you know of him. You know of sort of his prestige. 
but yeah, I, I don't think I'm as experienced in him as I as I maybe thought I was. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a bit more than just these two films because I've also seen Hidden Fortress mainly because it's like, oh, hey, this is like the blueprint for Star Wars, which is very accurate if you've ever seen Hidden Fortress. It's so close. And Seven Samurai, I remember I saw it in the theater, and I was pretty excited to do that. Um, High and Low is a very good one. That also stars Toshiro Mofune. That's more of like a, uh, at that time, modern, uh, like, kidnapping thriller. Uh, that's really good. And also uh, Derusu Uzala, which is about uh, basically like this Russian military guy coming upon a Japanese person who basically kind of sees himself as the last survivor in, like, these uh, Siberian woods. Kind of like a lone wolf guy. It's a very fascinating movie. Despite the sort of grand scale of any of these movies, he's kind of playing with, you know, familiar themes and also very much, like, human interactions. I think particularly with Throne of Blood, despite being, like, a big Shakespeare adaptation and dealing with, like, ghostly, haunted elements, but also big, epic scale of war and all this other stuff. It's a movie that, much like any Macbeth story or adaptation, is just about, like, very frightened, pathetic people who are trying to seek power. And uh, he manages to illustrate that in a way that's very universal, despite any language barrier or cultural barrier or anything like that. The dauntingness of covering an Akira Kurosawa movie, uh, you can relate to that kind, or at least see a bit of, you know, relatable human aspects to a shitty dude trying to seek power and ending up crumbling because of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's one thing I can say uh, about this. It's, uh, it's atmospheric as all fuck, dude. Like, this movie, it's gorgeous, it, it's great, and I notice, of course, it's Criterion. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Yes, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes. But it, it's just, it's fantastic. This is the type of movie that is, at its core for me, like, the type of shit I, I love. I love ancient feudal Japan stuff. I love samurai culture and sort of everything behind it. For it to marry to one of the greatest Shakespeare stories of all time, uh, and do it so expertly well and so atmospheric and so beautifully and the scope of this thing and the scale behind it. it it's just, it's so good. It's so, so good. Do you like it? I kind of preferred Romeo's Die. Oh, of course. You're watching this just like, where's the wire foo? Where's the American football like, Where is Anthony Anderson? <laughs> I, I The acting, the sort of, like I said, just the fog and the the costuming and which is the costuming is fucking incredible it's just i i can't believe it took me this long to see this like honestly i'm kind of dumbfounded that i'm just now seeing this yeah i mean i hadn't seen it either i'd heard a lot about it. i think the only clip of this i'd seen is admittingly a great scene at the climax of this movie um involving arrows which we'll go into in a bit more detail i think as we go along here um but yeah i hadn't seen this i also though hadn't even read Macbeth before. Macbeth was always sort of like the big Shakespeare play I never read in like college or high school or any of that. Um, so in prep, I actually watched the Orson Welles adaptation from 1948, which interestingly was the movie that made Akira Kurosawa say, oh, okay, I'm going to wait a decade <laughs> to make my own version. I mean, I'm familiar with so much of the stuff like the Three Witches, Boil, Toil, and Trouble, and all that other stuff, like the, and obviously like the, the Lady Macbeth archetypes and all this other stuff. I'm aware of all that stuff from just cultural osmosis. But at the same time, going from that more traditional, though still very Orson Welles weird adaptation, to this, 
is uh, kind of stunning. Because the big thing is, this doesn't seem to, and from what I've heard and read some like other essays and stuff, kind of intimating this, based on even just the actual text, it does take a lot of liberties with the text. Like, particularly, there are not three witches. There's the one, the Spirit of the Spider's Web, is what they're mm. called in the credits, um, played by uh, Chieko Nanawa, which is, I apologize, and one of many Japanese names I'll probably fuck up over the course of this not discussion. Not even going to try. Um, yeah, I, you yeah. Know, I try, because I put yeah, some I'm not even going to try that. But uh, anyway, yeah. Um, well, no, that's good. But <laughs> I put if I put, I'm gonna fail. So why even put the effort? <laughs> Not afraid to try myself. But I love the fact that instead of like the three witches and the all that other stuff, it's so much more unsettling to see this one person caked in like powdery makeup in the middle of like this little hut that Tashiro Mifune um, and uh, Minoru Chiaki. Uh, as Miki uh, come across. Um, I love the look, and like you mentioned, there's this ethereal fog, which makes more sense, at least from cultural osmosis, to like Scotland, where the original play takes place, as opposed to seeing it in a Japanese forest feels very eerie. And then just this one person caked in powdery makeup, just like alone with like the weird spindly thing that they have, and it's just like, oh, you will end up becoming not just um, this particular high slot to the king, but also eventually king very quickly. Like, that's immediately fascinating where you're just like, I'm caught off guard by seeing this unnatural kind of, like, ghostly figure. But at the same time, I get the, you know, how Tashiro Mofuni would be initially like, this is weird and off-center, but also, fuck yeah, king. Shit. Good. Good <laughs> yeah. <I> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. The, just the simple sort of camera tricks that they used when sort of the witch disappears and they go through her hut and then they turn around and the hut's completely gone as well. Like yes. it was so cool and just gave sort of this like real spookiness to the whole thing. And, and that's one thing, like I said, this movie has the atmosphere, but it is, it's, it, it's unnerving kind of the whole time too. Well, no, I mean, mainly like Macbeth, just based on the elements, it does feel kind of like it's Shakespeare's horror story. It has a lot more of just like ethereal yeah. ghosts, even than like a Hamlet does and the witches and all this other stuff. It's this oncoming dread building up the whole time. And I think that kind of fits for, like, the stuff you mentioned with the witch, but also even, shout out to uh, Aizuu Yamada, who plays the sort of Lady Macbeth mm. surrogate here. She also has this unsettling quality because it, I guess it kind of fits into the way this is staged. It's based on apparently this old form of theater called No, which is like a Japanese traditional thing that it's not quite as like over the top as Kabuki. It does a lot more sort of like smaller movements from what I understand from my limited research and mainly cause I'm a dumb white American who probably doesn't know the huge history of this um, form of stagecraft in Japan. But it's interesting because when you watch it, it is a bit unsettling. Like Toshiro Mofune has a bit more of like a human relatability in terms of like, he's constantly having huge human emotions but someone like Yamada, what I love about her is that she is constantly sort of controlled and reserved in a contrast to him. And especially for like the first half of the movie is very much in just like a, hey, why don't you calm down and just take advantage of the situation? Let's go ahead and just fucking kill the king. Only she does it with a lot more like quiet and stillness and especially another great camera trick like the one you were talking earlier with the witch. Um, the thing where she goes into the one hallway to get drugged water. And just shows her going all the way into the darkness and just stays on that dark freaking hallway. And then she comes back out of it. That's also unsettling. 
Yeah, no, it, it's terrifying. But it's almost like you get the idea that maybe the spirit has even possessed her at this point. Like, she's just so otherworldly in her actions and the way she talks and moves. Like you said, Mifuni's on at full fucking 10 the whole movie. Like, he's yes. he's screaming and big facial expressions. And it, it, it's such a cool counterbalance between the two because it does give her, uh, as juxtaposed to him, it's such a weird sort of creepiness about her it, it, it's quite uh quite masterful it, it's you know again I, I mean i prefer when we almost die but this is uh this has got you know some quirks to it i don't know i saw a few wires why didn't they digitally remove those george lucas style special edition yep, me too throwing a blood yeah Seneca katana's all the samurai's got walkie talkies <laughs> i love that bit where they remove the witch and just put cg Jabba in there Dashir <laughs> Mafuni stepped over her tail. It was so great. Um, I think also what what works is the fact that like with Mafune, like obviously in like Seven Samurai, so phenomenal in these other movies, like he has that facial expression that could mean that like oh he is the baddest person around, or more likely in the case of this movie, just like I am pretending to be the baddest person around because I'm a frightened little boy who doesn't know what to do. And I'm just going to lash out at people and do whatever the hell I want. And the movie mostly stays with, like, him and his wife. Because, like, the big thing they change, from what I understand, the source material is, like, the Macduff character. Uh, Takashi uh, Shimura, in this case. Um, usually, they would play a bigger role because after the king ends up dying, they would come in and be like, hey, what the fuck's happening here? And have, like, basically, you would see them stage the whole revolt against Macbeth in that case, and like right. the original play and stuff, as opposed to here, he's much more just like in the background, you hear that he's getting these huge defenses, but it's mostly just following like the um, Macbeth character for, for Mifune and just seeing him completely crumble in isolation, basically. Yeah, yeah. What was your sort of favorite set piece in the film? Because I, I definitely have two, and I'm curious if they're going to sort of coincide with yours. Um, I mean, I would probably say... Uh, these might be the same too, I would agree, is the second Uh-oh. scene with the witch that ends up being all, like, um, spooky and ghostly with the presence of other, like, fighters that come in, like, other sam- former samurai who have perished in the past in the middle of the forest. I thought that was amazing. And then the arrows Uh-oh. bit. That's the bit that I'm referring to in terms of, like, oh, shit, all the um, arrows are flying at him. I saw that clip many times before this. In context, it's, like, a great, rousing, terrifying way of ending the story. Uh, but those are my two. Uh, I, I mine, I mine definitely the arrow bit, and then the other one I really enjoyed the part where all the crows came in, sort of the drinking hall. Mifune's just freaking out. <laughs> he's so good and he's so over the top, but in a way that totally works for the version of the story they're trying to tell in, in this movie. Just wild-eyed and crazy. But what I think works about him is I agree. He has these like big over-the-top reactions. But it works so well for, like, playing the Shakespeare adaptation, especially being the one guy who was able to go this over the top. Everyone else around him is just looking at this guy like, the fuck's happening to him? And even, like, his wife's just like, no, calm down, everything's great, we're all fine, nothing bad's happening. And meanwhile, Mifune's like, ghost! The ghost! He's over there in the corner! <laughs> like, it's it's this great thing where he's going this over-the-top way, and it's a way that still works for, like, he's not a cartoon, necessarily. He's just like, oh, this is a human man who was completely thrown to the depths of insanity because he's being sort of either manipulated by what he's heard or what his wife is saying or also just... He's also unhinged because he's just like, I have all this power now and I don't know what to fucking do with it. 
that's the whole thing. Is like Macbeth is this character who is seeking so much power, and ultimately when they get that power, they're like, um, well, I better hold on to this. Uh, fuck off, everybody! Like anyone who might be in my way, <laughs> murdered. Get the fuck out of my face! Like he's a child with a gun, basically. And in this case, a gun being a huge fleet of samurai warriors. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Yeah, yeah. He's he's given this power that he has no idea how to properly wield it or where to point it or anything. Like he has no idea what he's doing. He's so in over his head. And he just like basically becomes, like you said, a, a child wielding a gun. He, he's, he wants to be this ultimate Lord and tyrant, but he just doesn't even have, I would say the maturity to do it. Right. And I mean, it also helps that like, you can tell Macbeth was so influential on so many of these sort of like, be careful what you wish for stories where like he hears this prophecy and ends up like, oh, I'm going to be all this rich, but oh, wait, the son of my best friend is going to end up taking over for me. Um, well, guess what? I'm going to make sure that he dies so that prophecy doesn't happen. Everything's going to be great. And then it all just really just completely falls apart for him as things go along. It feels almost like it's the structure of like a Tales from the Crypt episode where it's just like, oh, my God, ironic twist and just would have cut to like that witch in the corner and just doing a crypt keeper laugh is all that was really missing from this. Yeah. Which I could, you know, I'd be all right with. I just watched this yesterday. Now I really, really liked it. Like they actually kind of fucking loved it, but because I'm, I'm so not familiar with the source material as much as I'd, I'd like to be, like I said, I know the basic tenets of Macbeth and, and sort of what happens, but it's, it's such a gray area for me. Most Shakespeare nowadays well, not nowadays. It's not like there's any new material coming out. I, I don't know. I'm I'm very excited for Macbeth to hyper Macbeth. I think it's <laughs> <laughs> by storm. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so it, it's one of those that I definitely want. To, I, I'm going to revisit it. I found myself more or less not paying attention to a lot of the dialogue and just kind of being blown away what was being shown on screen. So, which is unfortunate because it is shakespeare the dialogue is what matters the most well i mean the big thing is they don't they don't use any of like the the text no of course not but the you got to follow the story you know what i'm saying as much as you can how is a movie that looks like this and is this so kind of profoundly acted and beautiful looking and everything just kind of one that's not really mentioned a lot that's weird, because, like, I agree, it's not as huge as Seven Samurai, necessarily, but I would say Throne of Blood is one that I heard about for years, I just hadn't seen it. I think that's the bigger thing, is this is a very famous, well-liked movie. We just haven't seen it before. <laughs> well, I never heard of it before. Right, that's your problem, as opposed to, like, oh man, I guess because I haven't heard of it, all of, like, cinema is not aware of this great classic underrated gem. <laughs> well, I like to think of myself as sort of the authority on the movie-going audience and cinema watchers. So... By that logic, Bart would have had, like, 50 different films in his filmography as opposed to seven. He does. I own all the negatives. I'm just not releasing them. The world couldn't handle them. <laughs> you have, like, a Prince-style <laughs> vault with all the Bart films yep. that have not been released? <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and they are great. Oh, oh, gosh. Well, I think... Even for me, like, just being vaguely aware, having just watched, like, that other Macbeth adaptation, what's so fascinating is just even, like, you mentioned the dialogue, like, it's pretty sparse on dialogue by comparison, because it's so much more about, like, the ethereal look of everything. Like, you mentioned the rolling fog, or even the look of the castle, What I love finding out that blew my mind was all the exteriors that we see 
are shot literally around Mount Fuji. Oh, no shit. Blows wow. my fucking mind, because apparently that's what Akira Kurosawa won that specific kind of texture and look to, like, the ground and everything. So they shot around Mount Fuji, and he said very bluntly, like, oh, it was a pain in the ass. I fucking hate it. I regret doing that. But it looks great. Like, going out there and seeing, like, these huge cascading, like, mountains all around, like, these this big sort of area and it doesn't even feel that different when we go into like interior stuff that feels very much in a studio at the same time because like it feels like it's this weird ethereal ghost story like i mentioned where it's just like it's all these people who are stuck trying to defend this kingdom that they have and very much not questioning like oh i guess the king just recently died so uh the new guy who just became like second in command uh you go ahead and take the reins it's this weird kind of like horror fantasy story basically about just like like they mentioned like that kind of be careful what you wish for element leading up into like we kind of referenced earlier the arrow bit is such an astonishing death on screen it's just like such an amazing look at like how someone can immediately have everybody turn on him and just Mm -hmm. be like oh come on you cowards don't you have any kind of self-respect then they shoot just like oh um i mean not that kind of self-respect hold on guys we shouldn't guys come on aren't we friends and then fucking tashiro mofuni turns into a pincushion he is just barraged with oh yeah so wonderful to see the terror on his face apparently a lot of real arrows were used for the ones that are like around his head basically and it was just really well choreographed it's astonishing to see and not for nothing, but the practical effect of the one going through his neck is kind of mind blowing. Like it's you see it happen full screen, like whoop, and it's in his throat. Like I'm sure there's a cut there and all that stuff, but it's really kind of seamless. And yeah, you see it right in his face when that happens. Like oh, that's definitely the one. Like that ended it. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. And then him just sort of walking, collapsing in the fog, and all. it's just it's so cool. What a cool, cool movie. For, recommended by a cool, cool guy. Not you. Not you. Not you. Oh. Not you. Yeah, it wasn't you. No, I'm not talking about you. You're not the cool it's your, guy. It's your friend, HBO Max. Your boy Max. Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's my friend, Mahamas Tariani. Oh, oh, boy. That guy he's a bizarre like an asshole. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, nah, he's sweet, dude. He's a badass. Oh, that's right. He's my evil me. So he's he's like a very sweet, nice man who like goes around helping the poor and everything else. Just like a great dude. Yeah. Um, I love that you messaged me not too long after like you were into this, and you're just like, I can't believe right after me, you madness, you completely redeem yourself by selecting this. Yeah. Just, just yep. I contain multitudes. I I take the the premise of the show seriously. Oh, good. And a bad feature. <laughs> oh, I definitely do too, you fuck. It's just you scour the internet or have fr- who have and you actually have friends. <laughs> but you actually have friends who are aware of some of this just random garbage that I completely am not. So I mean, yo, me you madness and like Oogie loves and all that. Hey, fuck you, man. Like you know, of course those are gonna win as far as the worst ones. <laughs> Jeez. But also, I can recommend a massive classic from 1957 as opposed to, say, keep picking movies from, like, the late 90s to early 2000s, which is your raison d'etre of an era, as it were. Yeah, well, I grew up in that era, so I'm more comfortable with movies from that time. You know, I, I look at them like a security blanket. Sorry, we're not all cinematic rebels like you and Robert Rodriguez. How dare you wrote me with him? I'm sure he would say the same thing if he heard that. <laughs> He absolutely would. <laughs> He'd bust a guitar over my back. 
Um, but is there anything else from Throne of Blood you'd want to shout out before we go into like some final thoughts and all that, Adam? You know, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but I just kind of want to reiterate how impressive I found the costuming and sort of the set design and even the weaponry and everything. Like, granted, I'm not from feudal Japan, but when I, you know, in my mind's eye picture a samurai or, you know, you see this sort of the ancient parchment paintings and the scroll work, this all looks like legit to the time. And I'm just kind of blown away that a movie from the early 50s was able to achieve something just sort of this epic even on that scale alone yeah i mean one other thing i wanted to shout out was just um with um azu yamada again all the stuff that happens after she apparently ends up giving birth to a stillborn child in like the second half of the movie i was astonished by just how unsettling really her acting was particularly the bit where she's like washing her hands just like i can't get the blood off i can't get it off is so unsettling and especially it's in such contrast to her being the kind of lady macbeth character who is traditionally much more of like a oh hey i am the machiavellian brilliant woman behind the man who's able to orchestrate this even in this movie you see that where she does like the whole thing with the drugged water and then later on with like where she plants the giant like murder weapon on the one guard and it's just like oh no the king has died and all this other stuff i think she does such a phenomenal job of really engrossing in the fact despite the fact that she committed all these sort of like atrocities she is a human person she is like an actual three-dimensional human person who's capable of doing all these horrible things but at the same time is a real human being which i thought was the same thing with uh Jeanette nolan in the uh Orson Welles adaptation I saw before this. That's it's a role that like could be in theory like oh just kind of like a sexist depiction of like women who are controlling and conniving to destroy men, but really it's just more like well you know she's a woman who wants power in the way that where she loves her husband, but also wants to like have that power at the same time in a very human way. So she's like a dimensional interesting character as opposed to just like you know a ghostly monstrous figure. And I, I love how they depicted her. In that second half. Yeah, definitely, man. I completely agree. Um, well, let's go ahead and just do quick final thoughts then on uh, Throne of Blood. Anything else to mention, Adam, here as a final thought? Like I said, I watched it last night. Uh, I definitely want to rewatch it again. Um, you know, I don't think I get... I, I really liked it. Like, I loved it last night. But I also had some things going on personally that might have taken me out of it a little bit more than I necessarily would have wanted to. So I definitely want to dive into it again and give it even more attention. And uh, I'm just, like I said, I can easily see this as becoming one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, yeah, a hot take. Akira Kurosawa can make a good movie. I know. I'm breaking all, all right. barriers by saying such a thing. Just people aren't prepared for something like that. But no, yeah, I love this movie. I think it's an interesting kind of transformation of what Shakespeare was doing, but doing it in a very interesting way of just like, hey, let's take the ideas here and transport them to a different time and a completely different language and even not have as much of the actual text in there, but replace it with a lot more of the atmosphere and the con consistent kind of like dread that's building up about this character. Um, I just, I, I love all that. And Tashir Mifune, obviously one of the more fascinating screen presences out there. It's a, it's just a phenomenal movie. I definitely, if you uh, have not seen this because you're a bit daunted by watching a Kira Kurosawa movie, it's in black and white and has a Shakespeare adaptation, uh, watch it because it's just dope cinema. Don't uh, limit your ability to watch great movies just because of those barriers. It's, it's great shit. 
Yeah. The review that I'm sure Kira Kurosawa would have been most complimentary of. Just like, oh, thank you so much. Great shit. It would have been all over the posters. <laughs> uh, Criterion, you can use that if you want for the next edition. Yeah, yeah come on, guys. <laughs> Just... Great shit. Fuck boy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, anybody at the Barnes & Noble 50% off sale will definitely pick it up because of that quote. I, I definitely yep. would say. Well, now, Adam... It's time after we've uh, covered the two films, as we traditionally do, to do the double review, where um, each week you and I have uh, four movies total, two good ones and two bad ones, that we say, hey, if you like these movies related to this topic that we covered, uh, definitely watch these two that we recommend and these two that we don't. So, Adam, you have your movies. Please say uh, your Shakespeare double redo choices. Uh, my first one, you know, we alluded to earlier in Romeo Must Die. Like, can you make just a solid action? You know, Shakespeare, you know, has done, and I argue, yeah, one of them is that what did it right was the Gerard Butler, Ray Fine starring Coriolanus, uh, based off the play of the same name. It's such a cool movie that really updates the setting from, you know, ancient Rome to modern day European location with Ray Fines and Gerard Butler friends and then eventually warring against each other with their separate armies and everything and it's as violent and it's great maybe it's the best Gerard Butler performance I've ever seen I've seen especially lately a lot of really good work out of him I see Cop Shop uh, but Coriolanus great great movie really cool it's spoken completely in the uh, the language of the play like it is all old English and it's just it's really really fucking cool man i can't recommend it enough a lot of good camera angles great action uh i i like i said i thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it um and then the other one is also sort of a modern telling of uh titus oh god i think it's titus agnasius titus andronicus yeah that's it titus andronicus thank you thomas look at you making me better again uh <laughs> and it's with uh anthony hopkins and jessica lang Great use of color theory in this movie. Great set pieces. Great armor design. Great kind of everything. It's a really, really good movie. And, and, you know, again, just back when Hopkins was actually really giving a shit, uh, he's he's fantastic in it. And so is Jessica Lange. She, I mean, she's, you know, Jessica Lange. She's pretty much always great. But really strong performance with both of them. Uh, I highly, highly recommend that one as well. And then for my bad ones, really quickly... I have uh, well, how we mentioned the sort of teen boom of Shakespeare movies. I have uh, two of those. One is O, starring Mackay Pfeiffer. Uh, you know, it's based on Othello, and it's uh, it's really dumb. Like it's really stupid. Like it takes place like you know high school basketball and blah 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 blah. It's just so dumb and teen melodramatic, and it doesn't work on any level. No chemistry. Just it's just it's it's a garbage garbage movie. And then the other one I have, which I know a lot of people really fucking love, uh, but I have Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. I found this movie pretty much intolerable the first time I saw it, and my opinion has not changed. I, I do not like the sort of kinetic way it's filmed with the close-ups and the, the weird twitchy performances from a lot of the actors. And uh, I, I, I will say, I think John Leguizamo is actually pretty fun in it. Uh, but I think everyone else is just kind of bored and, and doesn't really know what they're doing, like what type of movie they should be making such a pretentious mess of a movie. And I, I as I see more and more of his work, I think Baz Luhrmann is just okay. 
I, I just, I, and this is one of those that I'd argue might be one of his worst. This and probably Australia, of course, but this is just, it's a bad movie. I mean, I think he's only made like five movies, so you've named yeah. like. <laughs> I, I think maybe it's just a thing of it's not for you. I think that's that's very clearly that's what it is. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but but I mean, okay, I have only seen Romeo plus Juliet. I haven't seen Coriolanus or Titus. I've heard great things about both of those. Oh, I haven't seen also, the most I know about that movie is one, Julia Stiles also stars in that, after having been in 10 Things I Hate About You, uh, the more commercially mainstream version of that. And also, um, it's directed by Tim Blake Nelson, which is really weird (laughs) that that's one of the movies he's directed. I don't know, just a weird thing. But I have seen Romeo plus Juliet, not in a while though, not probably since around like, I don't know, high school or so when I last read Romeo and Juliet. But, I mean, I remember... Kind of having the same opinion I do on that as I do about Moulin Rouge, which is to say, I think it really has a lot of fun when it's more energetic and over the top in the Baz Luhrmann way, but I really check out a Baz Luhrmann movies the moment he goes into, like, the quiet melodrama. That's around the point where I'm just like, oh, okay. I don't know if you, like, this feels more like a perfume ad than, like, the energetic cartoon you were making earlier. I kind of prefer... That's sad, even though that might be abrasive. I still prefer, like, that kind of element to it, where I agree, like, John Leguizamo is having a lot more fun. But DiCaprio and Claire Danes are at least, I think, a bit more interesting when they're in that kind of, like, oh, we just discovered love at first sight with each other earlier on. I think that's a bit more fun. As opposed to, like, when we get into full-on, like, oh, I'm dying all this other stuff, it just doesn't quite work for me. But then again, the appeal of that movie, honestly, is just more watching and seeing weird people pop up. Like, Paul Rudd is Paris? What? <laughs> He's wearing like a space suit at the fucking costume party. That's weird. Um, or, you know, obviously at that time, the appeal was also like the big soundtrack and the MTV kind of look. It's very much a 90s time capsule movie that I find fascinating on that level. And nothing else. It also gave me my favorite bit in Hot Fuzz, where they perform Romeo and Juliet and Simon Pegg goes to the performance. And then they have the whole thing where she dies. And then they immediately cut to the cast coming up and singing the, like, the love me, love me, say that you love me song. And then he cuts to Simon Pegg and he has that look of absolute horror on his face <laughs> as that starts. Uh, we wouldn't have that without Romeo plus Juliet. So in that way, it was totally worth it, Adam. Because I just sat through two hours of Romeo and Juliet and the kiss was the only believable good acting. <laughs> the way he Mm, and they keep going back for the kiss. It's so good. It's yes. so good. Yes. Oh, Lucy Punch. So good. But now, Adam, I have my picks here that I'll go ahead and go through. Uh, first, I'll start with my two good, which are interesting adaptations of different Shakespeare uh, plays. Uh, first, they have Forbidden Planet, which is a 50s sci-fi movie that uh, basically adapts The Tempest which if you don't know is the story in The Tempest of like a bunch of people wash up on an island and there they find a magical wizard and his young daughter who are living there and all these magical sort of beings that are around on this uh, island that they've created. And they substitute that with like a spaceship arriving on a planet where they find this, um, you know, scientist and his daughter who, uh, the main guy who's leading the spaceship played by a young Leslie Nielsen which is very interesting. It is worth watching this movie alone, I think, just to see him in that particular mode. But also even, uh, this is the debut of Robbie the Robot as uh, a sort of film character, and I think he's such a great robot design. We've talked about him on like Patreon content about robots and stuff like that. Um, I think this is a really interesting take on Shakespeare where they 
take the concept of the Tempest and adapt it into a really solid little like sci-fi story. I think it's probably the premier version of what I would display as like 50s sci-fi with the aesthetic of everything and the performances from everybody kind of being just over the top enough to keep you engaged but not too like wooden so you're kind of bored by it at any point. I, I think it looks gorgeous. I, I just love the the way that it all plays out there. I just think it's a very fun film of that era that adapts Shakespeare in an interesting way. The other one I have here is a more faithful adaptation uh, called Richard III, obviously adapted from the play of the same name. But this is from 1995 and is notable because it stars Ian McKellen as the titular Richard III, but also it is the only film of his uh, that he's in that he has a writing credit on, along with uh, Richard Longcrane, who is the director of the film. And they basically adapted this from a stage production that Ian McKellen did um, in the 80s that transposed the iambic pentameter and all this other stuff into, like, 30s-era Britain. And it's a bit more of a fictionalized thing where basically Richard III is adapted in this case to be a fascist dictator of sorts where the look of him and the costumes all this stuff is very like sort of nazi inspired and all this stuff and they play loosey-goosey with like all this king stuff but it takes place in like 30s era england there's a lot of interesting people in it like a ned benning and kristen scott thomas this is uh, also robert downey jr at a very young age is around the time of like his big drug addiction stuff um but there's a lot of fascinating ideas of how they adapt the text, where if you don't, Richard III is very much like another Machiavellian story of like this guy, Richard III, who's kind of like an unassuming uh, uh, gentleman who works within the system of the king uh, to basically destroy the monarchy and become king, which he's such a fascinating character. He talks to the audience the whole time. Ian McKellen delivers that so perfectly. And they adapted it in a weird way where like, because it's the 30s. Uh, they're able to like sort of make this almost feel like a 30s musical without going full into a musical number. Like there's a whole bit where in the middle of this like British civil war that's going, everyone's dying around him. Richard III like goes down and is talking to the audience and speaking the iambic pentameter from the text in an almost musical fashion and is like being delightful about like, oh, I'm going to take over. It's going to be so great. And there are people dying around him in this hallway he's going down. It's this big one take where he just is going to like an infirmary where people are like stretchers and dying and horribly burnt while they're in the middle of this British civil war that's fictionalized. And he's just like, oh, I'm going up the stairs and I'm having so much fun and joyousness. McKellen just really digs into this role, and it's so stellar that even if you're a bit turned off by the iambic pentameter, you just want to watch him, and you want to see him keep going and take over, even if it is monstrous. And also, Richard Longcreen puts in weird inserts. Like, there's a point where Richard III falls over, and he, like, snarls at somebody, and that person is in bed, and he's dreaming about, like, oh my god, oh, and he's having a nightmare, in which they replay that scene, but when Ian McKellen turns around and snarls, he has, like, a weird pig face. It's one of the most unsettling images I've ever seen in a movie, and the movie's just full of those, and has so many interesting weird touches. Would firmly recommend this weird little movie. Um, and then my two bad, briefly... One is um, a more recent animated film from 2015. It is uh, Strange Magic, which is, which is an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, is notable for being the last film that George Lucas has a credit on in terms of who's a producer. And the movie was literally pitched by him as, what if we did Star Wars but for girls? And what he imagines that being is a Shakespeare adaptation where it's a jukebox musical. And they just take, like, you know, Strange Magic, the ELO song, and a bunch of other songs, and put them into a fairyland 
that involves like weird designs that are unique from other animated movies of this era, but also very ugly looking at the same time. And it has a pretty big cast, like Evan Rachel Woods in it, and like Tony Cox, a few other people. Like weird, at least, cast that I find fascinating. Uh, but it's pretty underwhelming, and you can tell why Disney got this in the Lucasfilm deal and just kind of dumped it into theaters in January. And it was like the lowest grossing wide release animated film of all time at that point, I think, <laughs> almost. Um, it's uh, You can see why they kind of wanted to bury it. It's not too good. Um, and speaking of bad musical adaptations of Shakespeare plays, I have one from... We mentioned Kenneth Branagh earlier in his Hamlet adaptation. He also did, like, Henry V, a bunch of other ones. But um, after his Hamlet adaptation, he decided to do Love's Labor's Lost, which is not a very popular Shakespeare play. That one that's staged often hadn't been filmed before, or I believe since this movie. And you can tell because it's this weird story about, like, a bunch of guys... One of them is the king, and they're all like, hey, let's all band together and study books while pledging not to have sex with anybody for three years. And then the joke is that, oh, they end up finding these women who they become attracted to. And it's one of his, like, light comedies. And it's a weird thing where Kenneth is one of them, and Matthew Lillard's another one, and Alonzo Navalia, who was recently in, like, The Art of Self-Defense, is also another one of them. It's a weird cast... Um, and they are all, like, uh, doing the iambic pentameter very much close to the actual text. But then they'll stop doing that and do big, elaborate 30s-era musical numbers of, like, old standards, like, uh, Cole Porter songs and George Gershwin songs. Like, there's a whole point where Kenneth Branagh does a huge monologue from the play, and it ends on him saying, Heaven! And they start singing, I'm in heaven! And they'll do, like, a huge musical number? where they're all, like, floating in the air and shit like that. It's weird. It's just two tastes that don't taste well together. And Timothy Spall and Nathan Lane are also there kind of embarrassing themselves. It's a weird adaptation of a play no one really likes, and it has really disappeared in the popular consciousness uh, for a reason. And I think it's kind of the movie that helped ruin the sort of Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare adaptations, because he did a couple after this that were, like, almost released to TV, and he had actually developed a company called the Shakespeare Film Company to try and, like, make more adaptations like this. And I think this being such a disaster at the box office really ruined any chance of him doing more, which is a bummer, because I'd love to see him do, like, a Macbeth, or especially as he gets older, a King Lear would be really interesting. But no, we get Death on the Nile with a totally unproblematic cast, I guess. <laughs> wink, wink. Um, so, yeah, those are my choices. Now, I've never seen the Love Labor's Lost one. I know of it. Uh, it just sounds atrocious and I had zero interest in it. So I never even sought it out. And even just hearing your description just now, I think I made the right decision on that. Um, Strange Magic, I have seen once uh, and I'd be hard pressed to tell you really anything about it. It is so forgettable in so many ways. Um, and I just remember it being kind of ugly. It felt too much like a commercial sort of attempt like if that movie had succeeded there would have been toys everywhere and that would have been the idea from george lucas never adam i know never. i know it's so against type but yeah forbidden planet's a classic man and yeah of course robbie the robot and everything and i, I love forbidden planet i've seen it I, quite a few times it's just one of those that anytime it pops on I, i'll just watch it um i it's just super fun and i i really really love it and uh, yeah, to to, go, to talk about Ian McKellen uh, specifically in doing Shakespeare, of course, yeah, Richard III is great. It is great. It's probably my favorite uh, Shakespeare film. 
Um, I, I just think it's fucking wonderful. But uh, the thing about Ian McKellen, he, you, you can tell just in that movie, he has such a love and appreciation for all things Shakespeare to the point to where I remember, you know, not to, I don't know, he might need the promotion, but I heard Ian McKellen on Mark Maron's podcast. And, uh, you know, Mark Maron is very much like, I don't really understand Shakespeare. It's never been my thing. And Ian McKellen did a three to five minute off the cuff, not rehearsed, not the words in front of him, uh, soliloquy from Shakespeare. And it ended with Mark Maron in tears. And it's one of the most incredible things I've ever listened to. It's really quite phenomenal. And if you're interested in it, it's at the very end of the episode that he appears on. But it's quite wonderful. And like I said, you could just see it in that movie, how much he cares about sort of the source material and the art of Shakespeare and things like that. And yeah, that's a fantastic movie. Yes. And uh, we would definitely recommend that if you submit any other great movies to us uh, for the double redo to uh, our various socials and such, as we'll uh, say as we exit this particular episode. But uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and repeat our titles. Um, uh, go ahead, Adam, and repeat yours first. Okay, my good was Coriolanus and Titus, and my bad was Romeo plus Juliet and O. And then uh, my two good were Forbidden Planet and Richard III, and then my two bad were Strange Magic and Love's Labor's Lost. Uh, but uh, we want to thank some people before we get out of here and do our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. Uh, first, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water uh, on Twitter and stuff where you can find a link tree and see all of his other great art. And we also want to thank our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get to do cool things like vote in polls for movies we cover, like Throne of Blood. You all chose that. We really appreciated it. And you also get to do that again, because uh, uh, this week that we're releasing this episode, you all get to pick between um, the two choices I have for our upcoming Valentine's Day episode. Yes, we're doing another romance-themed episode in February for that, and uh, the plan this time is to do sort of historical period piece romances. And I have uh, my two bad picks up for you all to choose. It's between uh, W.E. and Tulip Fever. Now keep in mind, W.E. was the film directed by Madonna about um, the sort of 30s era romance between, I believe it's King George VI and this woman that I find is a... I've heard is very bad, this particular film. And then Tulip Fever is notable because it's like a 17th century Dutch like romance movie that involves like Alicia Vikander and Christoph Waltz and all these other people. But it's also the last film produced by uh, a certain Mr. Harvey Weinstein before uh, he rightly ended up getting his career completely dashed. So from what I've heard, two very bad films, uh, one of which we will cover depending on who you all choose. I have... Uh... Zero interest in both of those. <laughs> I will say the uh, the Madonna ones, I, I think, is a little bit more interesting sounding. But also the other one, just the idea of the end of Weinstein and things like that, it makes it a little bit fascinating as well. Yes, but that'll be all up to you all, you patrons, you edgelord patrons, as we call you, who pay the $1. You all get to vote for that, and uh, we will end up with whatever bad choice you choose the particular episode. And also, you guys get to listen to bonus audio podcasts, like we have 
On the Edge of Relevance, which is our show where we cover modern movies. We'll be doing Scream very soon, so stay tuned for that. And yeah, so if you want more of our silly antics, please uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDVPod. And uh, you can also uh, submit feedback to us either there or on our, our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, if you want us to help support us, please uh, buy our merchandise over at the T Public Store for the ESO Network. There'll be a link in the description for that, where uh, for you know you can buy a mug or a face mask, a bunch of other stuff with our lovely logo on. It really helps out if they did what, Adam? If they buy our merch. I thought for a second, like, oh, was he doing iambic pentameter? It's like, nope, it's like a song? I don't know. I guess it's like Love's Labor's yeah, Lost. beautiful. It was beautiful. I'm not denying that. That part I'm not denying whatsoever. Yes. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, thanks, bro. And uh, for more of our antics, you can find me individually, at least, over on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd is at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing at both uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and Film-Cred.com. And shout out, uh, after this is released, uh, it would have been the sixth anniversary of me having the WordPress blog. Wow. Congratulations. Look at you getting all big and grown up. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. Yes, and for more of our antics, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO Network, why not dig into all the other great shows? Uh, on the network and uh, you can dig into our archives over on our Podbean main feed for a bunch of episodes we've done you know almost 200 at this point Adam it's crazy to think but um, a huge uh, archive awaits for you if this is your first episode and nothing else if you can't you know support us monetarily it's totally cool the completely free way to help us out though is to rate, review, or share the show around because that gets us more visibility that gets uh, people to uh, gawk and uh, find our jibes and gambles and such as the uh, the bard would say. Yeah, Christian, I, I see you've been doing it. Let's just keep it up, all right? Let's keep it up, bro. We'll put you on the payroll. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We, can't we don't pay people. Yeah, the overhead on that is, would cripple us. Yes, that's true. Christian just asked for too much money. By too much, he says like... $3. $3 a month. Yeah, he wants 3 bucks a month. That ain't happening, buddy. No, that ain't happening. We gotta eat. Yes. Uh, now, Adam, it's time for us to do our picking, as we do at the end of every episode. Uh, each of us has, you know, two movies of some sort. One of us has two good, one of us has two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for that. And um, we would pick a number between one and ten for each of our choices, uh, and uh, thus that gets us our good and our bad feature. Uh, though keep in mind there is at least a certain rule in place for one of us, where um, at the, but during last May, uh, we were both given a single veto to use. And uh, that veto will expire if we haven't used it by our next anniversary. And basically, if uh, someone hears uh, the a choice that they have to pick between, like in this case, it would be me. If I hear one of Adam's two good choices and uh, the first one he says, I'm like, you know what? I don't want that one, Adam. I'm going to actually take the cannoli for the Godfather rule. Adam had this veto as well, and he did use it. Fairly recently, when we uh, did our 2021 wrap-up episode, he vetoed the Cinderella movie, which left us with Me, You, Madness as our bad feature. Yep. Yep. The movie that broke me mentally. <laughs> yes. And that's saying a lot, because he gets broken mentally a lot on this show, especially by picks I have. Yeah, pretty frequently. 
<laughs> it's just it's one of those break reassemble things every time after the show i have to reassemble adam's brain it's a fun jigsaw puzzle but now adam you have your two good choices and i have my two bad choices for next week's topic which you know we mentioned scream is going to be coming out of fifth scream it's the first entry in this franchise not directed by a specific man uh because it was uh, this one's directed by radio silence who's a horror filmmaking team that is um, putting that one out, as opposed to the four previous films and several other great horror classics were made by a Mr. Wes Craven, who we've covered a couple of his movies on the show, but we've been wanting to do an episode about him for quite a while, and we figured this is probably the best chime, just because, you know, we need to look back as a new Scream comes out at the guy who created Scream and so many other great and maybe not so great horror films. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, when you think of modern horror masters, Wes Craven's, you know, at the if not the number one, he's at the top of the list. It's just, he was one of the biggest voices uh, in modern horror that, you know, you can honestly say that how many people he brought into the genre and made fans of just based on, you know, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise alone. I mean, and then scream with new fans of the nineties. I mean, the guy constantly was bringing people to the genre and keeping it alive. Uh, So yeah, he was uh, one of the best. And also, I would argue what's fascinating is, of those big horror legends, I would argue he has the most spotty career. Yeah, I think that's yeah. true. But at least, uh, you know, when we we have, I have the two bad ones for this. I'll just say, um, whenever Wes Craven made a bad movie, uh, God bless him. He went full bore. Because <laughs> his bad ones are fascinatingly bad, for sure. Uh, but go ahead, Adam, with your two good choices... Um, I'm going to go ahead and pick number six. Okay. At number seven, I have, which I probably have divulged to you. If not, that's, you know, you'll figure it out. But my favorite Wes Craven movie of all time. Uh, I have The People Under the Stairs. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah, it's my favorite. It's my absolute favorite. Yep. Uh, So do you want to take the cannoli? Yeah, since I have the option, I will not take the cannoli, though, because that's a great movie. I can't wait to talk about it. Hell yeah. Oh, excellent. And at number one, I have another one I think is quite good. Uh, I have the Bill Pullman Serpent and the Rainbow. Yeah, I believe those two movies were the ones he did back to back, right? Or no, wait, no. Shocker, I think, is in the between those two. One Shocker's I in between. Yep. Yes, right. Uh, but no, those are two very good ones and two a bit more underrated. But I, I prefer slightly people under the stairs. So, oh, me too. Yeah, me too. Down for it. Yes. But now, Adam, I have the two bad ones, and you have no veto to save you. Yeah. So please. I'm pretty sure I know where this is going, if I had to guess. I'm going to go number three. Oh, boy. I hope you're happy about this, Adam, because, yes, I think it's very predictable where this might have gone. But I have, I think, the most fascinating bad one of Mr. Wes Craven's career. I have his 1986 masterpiece, Deadly Friend. God damn it, I knew it. Fuck yeah. Of course. BB baby. <laughs> yeah, I would I wouldn't have vetoed that one anyways. I I, I the, yeah, that movie deserves to be talked about. We're gonna talk <laughs> extensively. Um uh, but um not too, you know, um far behind it over on the other side of things. Number nine, I had a more a recent one of his uh, that's pretty bad and was infamous for like the production problems about it. I have two thousand five's Cursed. Oh god. Good lord. Alright, yeah, alright. I th- I went out. Actually, Deadly Friend, better choice. Deadly Friend and People Under the Stairs. A lot to talk about. 
Would you have been surprised if I picked music of the heart? Uh, well, no, because you would have helped me hear the music of your heart. You would have taught me to run and taught me to fly. Yeah. Help me to free the me inside. Oh, I, I, of course, I would have been so on board for that. No. But no, we'll settle for people under the stairs. Um, yeah. And Anthony Sorry. Friend. So we'll uh, we'll have a lot of fun talking about those two next time. But until then, everybody, uh, brush up your Shakespeare. I was going to try to go somewhere in a pictometer, but I'm just going to say, catch you on the flip side, fuckers. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.